it'd be really nice just to not not have a passenger watchdog anymore because we don't need one. Wouldn't that be good that we, you know, we marshal ourselves um, rather than having a watchdog do it on our behalf? Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. As the rail industry starts to adjust to a post-Williams world, my guest this week has experienced a greater variety of ways to run a railway than almost anyone else. She's run a traditional rail franchise at Arriva Trains Northern. She's been an MD at Network Rail. She's been COO at GTR, Britain's largest franchise, and a trendsetter, it turned out, in taking no revenue risks. And now she's CEO of HS1, where she runs one of the few non-network rail railways. Oh, and she's also a director of East West Rail, which is building a vertically integrated rail operation between Oxford and Cambridge. It's a dizzying mix of structures and incentives and systems and makes Diane Crowther one of the best people to talk to about the post-Williams era. Diane, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Very nice to be here. Fantastic. Did you make a contribution to the Rail Review? Did they ask your advice? Uh, yes, I did. So um, I, I had an interview with um, Keith Williams um, and, yeah, so fed in my views and, uh, you know, on, on a broad range of topics, as I'm sure everybody else did as well. So it's good to see, certainly in, in what's been published today, uh, which, uh, you know, is I think is a very sensible document. It's a good vision. It's a good kind of direction for the industry to be moving in. And it, it was it's quite nice to see sort of some of the things that I was passionate about being, you know, being kind of included, not because I've said it, I'm sure, but because a lot of people feel the same way that I do, because a lot of what I think is common sense, to be perfectly frank. So, What were the key things that you you told him had to make, had to be in there or had not to be in there? Uh, so we so some of the themes that I spoke about was simplification. The industry has just got too complicated. People don't understand it. There are too many interfaces. It slows things down. Um, and that's certainly been one of the things I've noticed since I've been in, in HS1. We're small, we're accountable for our own destiny and you can do things quickly. Um, and, and that's great because our customers love that, the train operators, because that means you can get efficiencies in quickly, you can make fast decisions. And that's, you know, that's been one of the main bugbears, I think, of, of the core railway is it's just too complicated. No clear accountabilities, um, you know, ever since, uh, you know, Railtrack's demise and, and then the SRA's demise. Yeah, the accountabilities were quite blurred and, and that leadership was, was was missing, whereas nobody really felt that they wanted to take on that leadership or take on that accountability. The other area was really around skills and training. Um, another part of my day job is I chair um, National Skills Academy for Rail, very passionate about skills, very passionate about getting people into the industry, but also making the industry an attractive place, you know, somewhere where people want to come to have a career. Um, and so, you know, getting that sort of, you know, that, that skills on the agenda so that we can respond to future challenges, digitalization, you know, innovation, uh, but also the skills gap. I mean, in the report, uh, you know, all the age gap in the report, uh, I think it, it sort of said that, you know, a good sort of 60, 70 percent of the population in rail are over 51. So, you know, there's a massive, massive churn and turnover challenge that, that's coming our way. So we have to get more people in and we've got to make rail attractive. And once they're in, we've got to train them. And do you think rail is an attractive place for people to come and work at the moment? And do you think the changes that Williams is proposing will do more to make it so? 
I do. Um, I think if you simplify it so people understand, you know, well, if, if I work in this bit of the sector, this is what I do, uh, then I think that will make it more attractive and also more transparent and also more, 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 more visible. I think people are confused. If you're a passenger and you use the railway, you're confused. So why are you going to think, oh, I'm going to go and join the rail industry as, as a potential career? You're not, are you? So simplification um, and that greater level of transparency, local accountability as well. All of that, I think, will, will make rail a lot more visible you know, and a lot more attractive to people who, who are considering future careers. So as I said in the intro, you've done an extraordinary range of jobs with different models of running railways. Uh, of those, which of them just felt best to you, which felt like, yeah, this, this works. I can do stuff here. Um, I quite like my current model, actually, <laughs> at the moment, but you'd expect me to say that. Um, I mean, it's a good question. I think it's it's because uh, I've worked in so many different models. There's bits of each model that I've worked in that you go, actually, that's really good. Um, and I think what you can now sort of see in the Williams review or the Williams Shapps review is, uh, you know, a smorgasbord of a lot of the good things that I've experienced during my career. So when I first joined British Rail, uh, you know, I was I was an ops graduate trainee. Brilliant. You know, I got to, you know, talk to engineering kind of graduates. I got to talk to personnel training people, you know. So, you know, you, you kind of had that cohort and that kind of senior leadership across the piece. You know, that will come again. And, and Network Rail have started some of that work already for Andrew Haynes with the Connected Leaders Programme. Um, and I'm, I chair the advisory board for that. <laughs> so, you know, they, they asked me to do it because of, you know, the background that I have and I understand the interfaces and, and you know, and sort of some of the challenges that the system has. Um, you know, so, so that's one example. Um, you know, other areas is, you know, is devolved accountability. Uh, you can't run a railway from the centre. <laughs> you just can't. It doesn't work. So that devolved accountability is fundamental. And again, there's some good sort of stepping stones that are in place to do that. Um, simplification affairs, far too, far, far too complex. So, so that, you know, I don't think I've ever worked anywhere where it's been simple. Everywhere I've worked, it's been complicated and it's been frustrating and, you know, it's just been a nightmare to, to, to you know, to, to, to try and communicate and actually kind of un understand how to sort of simplify it. So, so it will be great if that comes through. Devil is going to be in the detail, but it's got to happen. And do you, one of the things that worried me going into the Williams process was about growth and kind of where responsibility for growth was going to sit. Of the different jobs you've done, which has felt like it's the one that generates growth best? Looking at the Williams Review, do you see how growth is going to happen going forward? Yeah, so Great British Railways has been given accountability for growing passenger numbers, which I think is great because you look at that kind of across the piece. Because uh, it's not just one thing that will, you know, will, will grow passenger numbers. It's, you know, it, it's a number of things because you're not going to do it on your own. And first of all, you've got to look at what are the barriers. And, you know, that's one of the things we've been doing at HS1. Um, when I joined HS1 just over four years ago, uh, you know, one of my strategic objectives was to get a, a you know, another destination on the departure boards at St Pancras. Um, and I guess I was probably a little bit naive because it's like, well, how difficult can it be? You know, we've got 50% capacity. We've got this fantastic kind of product, you know, with a green gateway to Europe. Why can't we run more train services? Well, because it's difficult. <laughs> There's a lot of barriers that you, you've got to get over. And I think if you've got that central body looking at what some of the potential barriers could be, but also looking 
uh, you know, what, where, where long-term growth is going to come from, you know, how we can kind of work, how we allocate resources, then that makes sense because you put the resources, you know, in, in kind of a, a key area, you know, rather than a, a scattergun approach everywhere. And then you've got that consistency. So, you know, so the central you know, body can sort of say, well, it's not now, it's in the future. And, and how do you leverage that growth moving forwards, but also leverage, you know, the kind of you know, private investment as well, because that in itself can leverage growth too. So Williams Review was, was quite quite heavy on, on private investment and bringing that in. Um, and I think that's important, but I think we need to look at it in different aspects, you know, innovation, uh, you know, how do we use, you know, sort of some of the assets that we already have, uh, you know, so how do we, you know, en enter more kind of relationships, more collaboration, more partnerships with the private sector that then helps to sort of drive that growth by providing investment um, so that you can actually kind of meet what, what future passenger demand is going to be. So probably not all my listeners know exactly what HS1 is and how it differs and how it works. So um, do you want to give us a, a quick pen portrait of HS1 and why it's unique? Yeah, we're um, a government-led concession, um, so that's quite unique in itself. There aren't any other concessions in the UK, I don't think. Um, we uh, have the uh, accountability to operate and maintain and renew the network um, until 2030, sorry, 2040. Um, so again, the longevity of the concession is quite unique. Um, we are sort of set up to be essential low risk infrastructure. So set up to um, attract private investment shareholders. Um, shareholders have uh, you know, you know, quite clear objectives around um, commercial growth. So, so again, a really, really strong focus on uh, kind of non-regulated income. So that's the other thing where we're quite different is we're not single till, we're regulated, but we have two tills. So all of the non-regulated money that we earn, we keep. <laughs> so so again that that gives us strong incentivization at places like St Pancras and, and our car parks to really really es extract maximum value so there's, there's quite a few areas where we're, we're different um, there's quite a few areas where we're also sort of similar um, but I quite like the different bits because that really kind of gives us our USP and brings a very different kind of commercial and and also kind of like an innovation and a technological dimension in, in terms of how we operate. So you run Britain's favourite railway station, don't you, St Pancras? Yeah, well, yes, we do. <laughs> so, the iconic grade one listed building that is St Pancras. So, yes, with, it's phenomenal. With the longest champagne bar in Europe. Absolutely. So <laughs> interesting. You should know about the champagne bar, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was worth double checking my facts. You know, I've always, I always want to research these podcasts very carefully. And now we're allowed to, you know. Um, the, 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 the Williams White Papers, quite a lot about commercialisation of stations. Um, and of course, you, you've got a handful of stations that you can sort of put your arms around and love and nurture. And you probably could list every single retail outlet in every single station because, you know, you, you, there's, so, there's so few of them. Do you think that it's possible to achieve some of the things you've achieved at HS1 on the scale that GBR are going to be trying to achieve them? Yeah, I mean, one of the things in the uh, Williams Review was to uh, take stations out and, and have sort of stations separate un, under Great British Railways, which I think is quite exciting. Because <laughs> um, stations are quite specialists, really. And, 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 and I started off my career in stations. Uh, uh, when I worked for Railtrack, I was 
the head of all the, the managed stations at the time as well. It was one of the best jobs I, I, I ever had. It was, you know, it was fantastic because you had, you know, a little bit of operations, you had retail, and then you also had sort of like long-term planning from a master plan perspective as well. And um, so there was, there was a lot there to, to kind of get excited about. Um, and I think over the years, stations have kind of got lost um, they've lost their way a little bit from a strategic direction. What do we want them to do? And this is one of the, the exciting things we're looking at, at East West Rail Co as well is, you know, how, how do we use sort of stations and, and, and the, the hinterlands around the stations to, to maximise value, not just for, for the railways, but for the wider community? You know, so, you know, how, how do we use rail and stations to sort of leverage growth, drive economic growth, you know, and bring the communities closer to rail so they're seen as added value rather than sort of something that makes a lot of noise and is, is just in the way and people disappear and then come back in the evenings. Um, so I think it's a terrific opportunity um, on, a, on a range of um, on a range of levels. One, productivity. Um, you know, so so how do we kind of operate and maintain, you know, these you know, kind of 2,600 stations or however many there are across the network? Because they're quite expensive. Now, how do we rationalise some of them? Um, because, you know, now... Now can we have the sensible conversation about, you know, places like Teesside Airport, <laughs> you know, has one train a month there, I think. Uh, but, you know, we still have to kind of, you know, maintain it, renew it, when actually wouldn't it be far more sensible <laughs> to be investing that money elsewhere? So, so by having that national perspective, I think that it really gives the opportunity, you know, to drive through sort of some of the productivity and efficiency measures so that we put the resources where they need to be, where the growth is, you know, rather than, you know, investing money in, in things that you're never, ever going to get a return on. Now, I'm not sort of saying let's close down all the community lines or anything like that. Absolutely not. But let's make some sensible, rational decisions on sort of, you know, sort of some of these assets that, you know, quite frankly, are a drain or a drain on the national purse. And, and, and I think that's where sort of, you know, having this sort of national sort of stations organisation, you, you could start having sort of some of those conversations. Um, so that's on the productivity side, but then also clearly, you know, on the commercial side as well, you know, network rail, British rail tradition was always really, really good. Uh, you know, driving commercial value from its stations, you know, Liverpool Street, the air rights development there, I remember that going up, Charing Cross, I was the station manager at Charing Cross when it was being built over and a big office development was going above. How do we do more of that? You know, how, how can we, you know, kind of generate that interest? And I think the, the, the complexity in the past, and certainly when I've spoken to, to developers for, you know, potential, you know, land sales that we've got on, uh, uh, kind of on, on HS1 and St Pancras, they always say to me, network rail is too complicated. The compensation levels are too high. You know, schedule four, schedule eight, there's too much risk there. You know, so, so moving out, uh, moving away from the access contracts and the, you know, the performance regimes that we have could unlock some more development. And I think that's a really, really good opportunity, you know, for, for Great British Railways from a station's perspective. And is that why all that stuff stopped, basically? Because the performance regimes just made it impossible? Because you're quite right. Up, there was a wave of exactly that kind of project up until privatization. And then basically all the station rebuilds since then, and some of them have been fantastic customer experiences, you know, Paddington, London Bridge, et cetera, but they haven't seen that kind of land use development that you've described. Is, is that what yeah, I, I think the no brainers got done. Yeah. So, you know, so where you've got that, that positive NPV, yeah, where you've got the business case there. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll take that risk. And the obvious ones are there, aren't they? Like, you know, Paddington and, and things like that. But it's the marginal ones, you know, where the risk, the risk reward isn't quite there. 
So I think this this overhaul of, of the kind of the access contracts, uh, you know, and this overhaul um, of, of sort of, you know, the franchise agreements will, I think, mean that sort of some of these schemes can now fly. So the blockers have, have been removed because, you know, Schedule 4 and, and Schedule 8 are quite prohibitive, you know, quite prohibitive, you know, just, just from a risk reward perspective. And you mentioned local stations, you specifically mentioned Teesside Airport, which is a great example because you know, that airport's just been taken into the public sector by the Metro Mayor in, um, in, in, in Teesside, who's got you know, just, just one re-election on something like 70% of the vote, an extraordinary democratic mandate. And that station is basically unused. And one of the things that wasn't mentioned in the Williams Review at all was, other than sort of slightly vaguely, was about devolving more to local areas. Because a part of me thinks that you know, the cost of running services to Teesside Airport should be given to the Teesside Metropolitan Authorities. And if they want to do more, they can do more. And if they want to do less, then they can spend the money on, on something else. Um, but at the moment, it very much feels like those decisions are all going to be taken centrally. What, what are your thoughts about you know, having a kind of central railway view, which gives you that great bird's eye view, against giving devolving to, to, to local areas because you've kind of uh, had a bit of both yeah i i think with, with the williams review let, let's not run before we can walk um the railways are centrally funded so we you know we, we shouldn't forget that um and i think um it will take some time before that kind of full devolution of of, of kind of budget and accountability will come uh, be, because of you know the reasons you sort of said you know London subsidises the north to a certain ex extent on, on, on train travel. You know, when I used to run um, Arriva Trains Northern many, many years ago, um, I, my, my main income stream was my subsidy line. Yeah, you know, I didn't earn enough in my ticket box, you know, through my fares revenue to, to pay my pay bill. So, 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 so we, we have to be kind of quite cognisant that, you know, L London is still the funder. Um, so, you know, you, you devolve, but you can't devolve all of the risk so so to speak because you know local authorities just won't be able to sort of do that so so you need to have that kind of partnership you know and understand where the risk lies and and and, and work more collaboratively i think and we've seen that a lot in uh you know post pandemic in in london where we you know the message is now coming from you know london business leaders you know to the mayor's office and and to government is work together <laughs> work together you know stop you know, stop fighting and work together for the greater good, you know, of the city, you know, and, you know, and if in terms of what we were talking about, you know, for the greater good of the passenger, you know, or for the greater good, you know, of the transport network in your area. So, so have some sensible conversations and, and, and maybe the, you know, the simplicity and, and moving away the complexity now means that, you know, the, you know, the local mayor now knows now knows who he needs to speak to and who's accountable. <laughs> Whereas in the past, people could hide; they could hide in mixed accountabilities and, and responsibilities. And, and you know, the simplification of the structure now now means that's not that won't be the case. So you've been a bit of a trendsetter when it comes to station and overstation development and that kind of thing at HS1. But previously, you were a trendsetter in a different way, um, in the form of a red tape running a regional rail franchise without taking revenue risk which is now the future for the entire industry what 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 did you learn from that experience about what will work in the future and what we need to guard against um so it's a mindset thing uh so just because you don't take the revenue risk doesn't mean to say it's not important um so uh so we spent an awful lot of time um you know with our main shareholder the department uh, you know talking about revenue 
sort of saying where the revenue swings will come in. So you've still got to take on that accountability. So whilst you haven't got the risk, you know, you've still got some responsibility. Well, you know, all the responsibility for making sure that you maximise the, the, you know, the revenue opportunity that, that could come into the business. Um, I think some of the other watch outs are as well is you lost the flexibility. Um, so, uh, so certainly uh, where I've worked and you, you have had the revenue risk on, on high days and holidays, you, you could kind of uh, make uh, compensation packages for passengers and things like that. And, and you could do, you know, almost like commercial deals because you had the revenue stream there and it was yours. Um, we lost that ability in, in GTR. And at times that became a little bit frustrating because you wanted to do what you felt was the right thing. And then you had to go through this rather convoluted decision making process to get something agreed and signed off. Um, and I think that's been certainly some of the feedback that I've, I've heard during the pandemic as well is, is you know, from, you know, colleagues in, in, in train operating companies that the decision making from within the department has been quite difficult, um, you know, and you know, the speed of being able to sort of go out and do the right thing has sort of slowed down. So I think there's there's an opportunity to make sure that that doesn't become the norm. And that you know, Great British Railways doesn't slow down decision making uh, just because there's a load of bureaucratic processes that that kind of get put in, and we forget that we have to put the passenger first. You know, and you know, most passengers will sort of say, "Well, I've had a problem today, so I want a refund." If you go to Tesco, so they go, "Yeah, okay, that's fine." You know, we can't go; it's going into this machine, and and it will talk to you in six weeks' time. <laughs> so, you know, so all of that has to be kind of addressed and dealt with. And it's not off, it's not always about technology; it's about mindset. <laughs> It's about mindset. And I always use the Timpsons example where, you know, the, 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 the Timpsons chain just sort of say, you know, the accountability we give to our store managers, even if the franchise is you do the right thing for the, for the customer. You know, and that's the only rule that you need to have. <laughs> so, yeah, end of, you don't need to come to head office. You do what you think is the right thing for the customer who's standing in your shop on that day. And do you think that can be achieved in the context of a, of a, business that doesn't have any revenue risk and therefore you're doing the right thing yeah effectively with someone else's revenue because you can totally imagine a situation where you want the operator's member of staff at that moment in time to say here's the answer i've solved your problem but you're you might end up giving away someone else's money yeah and again it goes back to to the simplicity doesn't it really so um i think under you know under sort of great british railways then yeah you know they they will procure the franchises you know, contracts will go out there um, there'll be sort of some quite clear kind of um, incentives and and things within the new kind of contracts and and I guess it, it's where's where's the gray because how do we operate in the gray um, and I think that 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 that's where the you know the, the key question the million dollar question is going to be moving forwards is you know how, how do we operate within the gray and, and and then to a certain extent what role does the regulator have you know, because, you know, they've got completely different roles moving forward. So where's the monitor and the, and the, the evaluator going, going, going to be in all of this? Because you can't write down a, every single scenario. You, you can't write a rule for everything. But what you can do is, is, is you can do you know, a percentage check and evaluate. OK, well, has this particular kind of um, rail company under this particular contract, are they doing the right thing? You know, across the piece. So, so what what's the balance scorecard that we're going to be looking at in future, and and we need to move away from, you know, pages and pages of compliance and you know, and pages and pages of evidence to sort of say yes, I've done this, you know, because I've done that and it's soul destroying. And guess what? It doesn't change anything. <laughs> um, 
So it, it, it's also, you know, it's, it's a different level of assurance that, that is, is going to be needed. So, so how does Great British Railways, you know, how does the regulator become more, uh, you know, one of my favourite terms, an intelligent client that's then kind of informing sort of, yeah, actually, they're doing all right over there. They're doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, we've got the right incentives in, in, in place. You know, rather than this, right, well, they've got to submit this, this, this massive audit, this massive kind of compliance pile, and everyone goes tick. And meanwhile, passengers aren't growing, dissatisfaction is growing, you know, because, you know, we're slaves to processes rather than slaves, you know, to, to doing the right thing. One That's of the things that are quite evangelical, I think, for the sector at the moment. But anyway, it's, a, it, it, it's my, my, my kind of thought process at the moment. One of the things I quite liked about the Williams Review was a typo. And it was in the little list of things that they were going to incentivize the operators for. They included passenger satisfaction twice in the list. And it was clearly a mistake, but I thought it was a very good mistake because I thought, yeah. actually, if you if you double weight passenger satisfaction and that's the thing <clears> that you care about, probably everything else will fall out of it well. Yeah, no, absolutely. 100%. And we, we do a lot at St Pancras on uh, to, to try to understand the, the customer. Um, we have our uh, we have a, an app called Station Matters. Um, so, you know, we, we know kind of weekly, monthly, what our passengers are telling about it, telling us about, we can respond to that. So if someone puts in an app, you know, the toilets were dirty, guess what, that's connected to our duty station manager, you know, so they can go, they can send the cleaning staff there immediately. So it's real time. And that's, that's, that's kind of what, what passengers want at the moment. It's, it's that immediate response to, you know, to a concern or an issue and, and, be, and then to be seen to be visibly responding. Because, yeah, we live in a massively dynamic world. It's changing so quickly that we, we, we've got to be able to empower the people on the front line to be able to respond to that and not just put lots of rules and regulations around them that sort of says, no, you can't do that, you know, because the book says no. So, you know, clearly, you know, sort of safety, yeah, there's got to be really clear guidelines. But, you know, on the passenger side of things, it just gets, you know, a little bit, you know, too, too rules orientated, too compliant orientated. And I think that's, take, take the shackles off and, and people will fly. You know, who are the people that, that get noticed? You know, it's the driver that, that does the quiz on the 810 up from East Croydon in the morning, you know, not, you know, and, and it's things like that. It's, it's the tiny notable things. It's the differences that make a difference, you know, that make a big, big kind of in, in impact on passengers. And I think, I think a lot of our, you know, a lot of our ground folk, a lot of our, our, our frontline teams have got afraid to make that difference. But because there's too many role, too too many rules, there's too many regulations, you know, to get pulled up because, you know, they've done something which I thought was the right thing, but it's not, you know, but it's not, it's been frowned upon. Now, I'm not saying that's the culture out there, but it's, you know, it, it's one of the causes I think of, of, you know, why some parts of the organisations are quite flat. So you mentioned earlier the importance of getting new people into the rail industry. What was it that first got you into the rail industry? Um, a lot of accountability early on in your career um, and also um, it was a lot of stuff was outside <laughs> so I was never <laughs> going to sit in an office <laughs> um, and, and I didn't really fancy retail and it was just different and it, it so yeah so a lot of it, it was it was just the fact that it was it was diverse and it, it was outside but the key thing for me was it was that a lot of accountability very early on in your career. And you know, you're not allowed to say the one you do at the moment. What was the best job you've done? 
And I think one of the best jobs I ever did was um, commercial director for Arriva Trains Northern um, when I first left rail track. Um, and and the reason is, is and the reason why that's one of my best jobs. It was my first director job, so it was like that was quite scary because you suddenly realise well, you've got to make decisions here. They're going to come up to you, and you're just oh, I've got to decide. Um, so that so from a development perspective, that 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 was um, quite a challenge, but it was great. Um, and also, uh, when I joined Arriva Trains Northern, um, it, the the company had just won an award for the worst train operating company <laughs> in the country. Congratulations! <laughs> uh, all of its um, all of its staff uh, groups were on strike, so the RMT, TSSA, um, and and it was in a lot of trouble. And and I thought, well, anything I can do isn't going to make it any worse. And when I arrived in York. Um, the headline or you know one of the headlines in i think the yorkshire kind of rag or the yorkshire angus or whatever was diane takes on the job that few would want <laughs> so was, and and do you know what well, I, I was up at arriva for three and a half years and and it was fabulous and we just went back to basics because that's really what passengers wanted uh, you know they wanted a, they wanted to know when a train was going to turn up you know they wanted to be told what was going on they wanted to be able to buy a ticket and have a member of staff at the window and that wasn't just our passengers that was also our employees as well because one of the things you know we learned you know as a senior management team when we were um you know doing our strike duties and I worked in the ticket office at, at Leeds so I I sat in the sportis office which was the kind of uh, what the, the machines that the conductors used to use to collect cash so my job was kind of counting cash and guess what you know the cash counter hadn't worked didn't work and it hadn't worked for weeks months you know and the air conditioning didn't work you know and the decoration was appalling um and you know part of the reason for that was the the previous franchise holder because Arriva bought the franchises because they wanted to buy a bus company from the previous holder and just happened to end up with with, with two rail franchises and the previous um franchise holder had basically you know bled the franchise dry had got a lot of problems so 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 a lot of the kind of discretionary stuff had stopped um and i think what we hadn't realized was the impact that it had, had in staff environments where things just hadn't been done so that was a real eye-opener and you know, and certainly, sort of, some of the commitments we took when the strikes finished was to kind of make sure that we we righted all of that, and we did, and we changed kind of you know employee satisfaction scores, uh, we changed passenger sentiment towards us, you know. And then I know when we uh, when we lost the franchise from having a post bag full of you know you ought to have the franchise taken off of you, you're rubbish, or you know you're this that and the other. You know, I had a post bag full of people being advocates for Arriva. <laughs> which was great. And it was just nice to have been part of that journey where you actually turned it around and, and had a go at doing things. Um, and yeah, and really made a difference. Uh, you made a difference to you know, the people that were, were traveling on our trains, but also you made a difference to you know, the 3000 people that, that work for Arriva Trains Northern and were very much our brand and you deliver your brand for your people. And if you're not treating your people well, guess what? Your brand's gonna suffer. And I've got to ask, while, while I've got you on, the HS1 is obviously our gateway to Europe. Um, we, we've, we've been hit by a combination of Brexit and COVID in the last few months. Eurostar's down to, I think, what, one train a day to Paris at the moment? Is, is something like one that? One to Paris and one to Amsterdam. Yeah. I, how, how much is that affecting your business? And is that something that we need to worry about? Or actually, if you're, if you're thinking to a, another 20-year view, does it not make an awful lot of difference? Um, so uh, if, if, if your star catches the cold, we get the flu. 
Um, so let's be very clear about this. Eurostar generate about you know 30% of our revenues. So they're 30% of our train paths. Um, they've been operating at 95% uh, down on passenger volumes for a year. Okay, so if if you kind of do the maths, it's you know it has quite a big impact on us. Um, you know what have we done? Uh, we've done a lot. We've been quite agile. We've been working very closely with Eurostar. So the first thing to do is is to make sure Eurostar survive. Um, so looking at our cost base, looking at where we can kind of help Eurostar. And that's not just us on our own, that's HS1 as a system. So that's working with our supply chain, working with Southeastern, working with government, uh, you know, in, in, in the sense of, you know, what are the levers that we can pull? Um, so, you know, there, are, there have been things that we've done that have, you know, kind of helped uh, Eurostar's uh, liquidity, uh, you know, quite clearly. And you do that when you operate within a system. Um, you know, from HS1's perspective, you know, we're slightly different. We have um, private equity shareholders. Um, so clearly working really closely with our shareholders, our lenders and our banks has been kind of quite fundamental, but we're no different to any other kind of private business. Uh, you know, we, we've got to have those regular conversations. We've got to be able to sort of say, right, this is what's this is this is our forecast for the future. Um, this is what the impact is going to be. Uh, you know, these are our plans. These are our mitigations. So, so it's been quite tough <laughs> you know, on, on, on a number of fronts uh, because we've not had the you know, the same protections that, um, you know, the, the rail operators and indeed Network Rail have had. So we've had to be really agile and quite creative in our thinking and and, and really work collaboratively with the supply chain to 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 bring them with us. Um, and it's been it's been a really, really positive journey, to be honest, because we're now working on future schemes with Eurostar and Southeastern you know, and, and our supply chain, which if we'd have said it two years ago, we'd have gone, oh, no one's ever going to do that with us. So we've fast-tracked our, our kind of technology agenda. Uh, we've fast-tracked collaborative working. Um, we're looking at sort of some, you know, really exciting ideas um, on St Pancras at the moment in, in terms of how we can really, really reduce the cost base and, and simplify things for the passenger. And, you know, it's, it's been the pandemic that's, that's kind of forced that, that type of thinking. Um, so, you, you know, we will take a lot of positives out. Uh, we, you know, we have and we will survive, um, as will Eurostar. Um, and it's good to see the green shoots of recovery coming through now. But, you know, we, we will continue to look for, you know, where we can still grow long term. And we'll, we're still having those conversations with, you know, potential new operators. Though Those conversations have continued. That's been really important. Um, so, you know, I'm quite you know, quite optimistic, to be frank. I mean, the last year has been tough. It's been tough for everybody. Um, but you, you've got to take the learnings and, and, and the positives from it. And that there is a lot, there is a lot of positives that, that, that we can take. Can you tell us about any of these uh, new ideas or new ways of working that you're, you're thinking through? Well, not any huge amount of detail, but it's, it's like um, avoiding duplication of effort. Um, it's... Uh, it's, it's a little bit like sort of some of the things that the Williams Shaps review was was pulling upon. And I often use the example when I used to <coughs> when I ran Kings Cross Station before privatisation. Anything that happened at Kings Cross that I kind of knew about and I was in charge of privatisation. Suddenly you had four of me, four sets of duty managers, and and it's just nuts. <laughs> you know, so that's a massive overhead cost. So you know, so so how can we kind of sweep away those those type of areas? But where are the areas we can do it in? So so one area we're looking at, for example, is can we run 
um, Eurostar's retail operation, you know, kind of air, air side. So we've got air side and land side like, like, like an airport. We do retail really successfully. We think we could we, we think we could do it in, in the Eurostar part as well. Um, so, you know, the, these are the areas that, that, that we're kind of looking at. We've got a list of things. And it's also things like um, cleaning. So Eurostar have all their own kind of cleaning um, contracts within the restricted zone area. So, you know, so therefore we've got two lots of overhead. So is there sort of something that we can do there? You know, as and when the contracts come up for renewal, where we sort of say, okay, we use that as a lever and, and we just have one contract for the St. Pancras rather than these, you know, lots of little ones. So really coming together, you know, sharing our costs, you know, being really transparent, you know, about, you know, where we are and then kind of working collaboratively sort of say, right, okay, well, you're going to be accountable for that now. That's fine. Um, and these are the outputs that we're looking to 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 achieve. Now, those are kind of quite grown up conversations, really, which, you know, eight, 12, 18 months ago, I don't think we would ever have had. Um, the other area that, you know, we've worked really closely on is sustainability. Um, and Eurostar announced... 12 months, 12, 18 months ago, I think, uh, the, the merger with, with Talis to form Greenspeed. Um, now, 18 months, two years ago, yeah, we, were, we kind of we did our environmental reporting, but we didn't, you know, what, sustain, what our sustainability strategy was. And so we sat down as a senior management team and sort of said, oh, we need to start getting our heads around this, really. And so a good, good place to start is you need to know where you are. So what are your environmental credentials? So we did a socioeconomic um, report. Um, we procured SDG. Um, and it was quite, it was quite an eye-opener, actually, because we hadn't really realised um, how strong, what strong a position that we were in. But by having established that, that kind of benchmark, you know, like we take 66,000 flights out of, the, out of the air a year, 750,000 tonnes of carbon, we take 15,000 lorries off or you know, cars off of the road, we've delivered 15,000 homes. You know, all of those, you know, are really important kind of statistics, you know, as, you, as you can tell, I've remembered them, so I, I, I repeat them quite often. But then having sort of established that, you sort of say, okay, so what's the next phase? So we, 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 we spoke to a lot of experts, we brought people in, we benchmarked ourselves against other transport providers, uh, you know, airports, airlines, you know, the roads. Um, and then we sort of said, right, OK, let's start setting ourselves some targets. So, you know, one audacious target, you know, that Eurostar had set us was, you know, well, Diane, we want we want all of our trains to run on, you know, 100 percent renewable energy. I was just like, I don't even know where I get my energy from, at the moment, let alone if it's renewable. You know, and, and hey ho, we've 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 now um, we now have a, a kind of an energy agreement, or you know, we've procured energy which is 100% renewable. Um, and the next phase to that is we're going to be doing um, kind of PPA. So uh, before long, you will see, you know, hopefully a, a, a wind farm built alongside HS1, and that will be providing all of the traction power for our route. Uh, you know, so it's fantastic, isn't it? But we've done that because we've worked collaboratively with Eurostar because that was a, a key USP for them. Um, but it's also then kind of flown into our sort of sustainability agenda. I think some of these things it will, will come out um, through the Williams review. This is where locally you, you, you can work more positively. It's not always about the cash. It's about the wider kind of value, you know, the socioeconomic value that's, you know, that's really important that, you know, the that the rail system can deliver. And I think we need to start leveraging that an awful lot more. 
So final question from me then, what, if you look forward five or 10 years, whatever time horizon you like, what will you be looking at the wider industry and saying, what's the benchmark of success? How will you know if this has worked? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> so, um, so I think um, probably three things if I can. So simple fares, yeah, so you, you can, you can, buy it or you, you can purchase a journey I'm not going to say purchase a ticket you can purchase a journey easily simply and be confident that you've got the best deal yeah so a bit like in London so you tap in you know I've got the best deal end of and that that, that that's kind of what we need so so, so that, that 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 will be kind of a key a key outlier for me um the second thing um is is uh hs2 so let, let's not forget the impact that HS2 is going to have, because I think that will be transformational. Um, and I think it will um, really, really sort of, you know, change some of the journey patterns, you know, on sort of some of our regions. Um, so, so I would like to sort of see, you know, HS2 being embraced. And it's been good to see in, in recent kind of weeks a, a different narrative coming out about HS2 now. So a lot more positive things and yeah, things like that, which is great. And, you know, Mark First and his team have done a brilliant job over that. Uh, and then the third thing, I think it would be really nice just to not not have a passenger watchdog anymore because we don't need one. <laughs> so yeah. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good that we 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 kind of look after ourselves? You know, we marshal ourselves uh, rather than having a watchdog do it on our behalf. Anthony, I love him to bits, but wouldn't it be good <laughs> not to have a watchdog? There we go, Anthony. That your card is marked. The benchmark of success <laughs> is that we don't need you anymore. Fantastic, Diane Crowther. Thank you so much for joining me on the Free Willing Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Well, thank you to my guest, Diane Crowther, the Chief Exec of HS1. And thank you very much to you for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. If you get five minutes and want to jump onto the place where you get your podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, and do a quick rate and review, that would be absolutely fantastic. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.